Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have a manifesto consisting of three central prongs. Prong the first to help you write more, prong the second to help you write better and prong the third to help you feel a little bit happier as you do so. To that end, I have little chats with you about stuff that's on my mind. I sometimes look at listeners' first pages that you've sent in and I say, here's some ways you could make it better and also make a few ill-conceived jokes. And finally, I'd say about over 50% of the episodes of me inviting another author onto the show and saying, hey, that writing thing, how do you do it? Tell me, please. I'm desperate. And they do so. Um, today's author that I have on as a guest is Aliette de Bodard. Uh, she is an author primarily of um, SF and fantasy. And it was really great to have her on. Rather than kind of doing the usual kind of like a big sort of sycophantic thing, uh, it's implied by having a guest on that I, I quite like their work anyway. I'll just let you listen to the... Um, interview itself and you will see my enthusiasm shine through and of course then you'll hear her talking about her work and you'll hear how cool it is and also it is worth saying beforehand if you're not a writer of science fiction or fantasy but also definitely if you are uh, she's also just really really good and game and up for talking about the nuts and bolts of how she does what she does uh, and really was sort of like really uh, receptive to my asking her to sort of break stuff down into its simplest constituent components but at the same time she's someone and I mentioned this in the interview who is just has a very uh, infectious enthusiasm for her characters and for following them through these amazing worlds that she's created and so that you we sort of have our cake and eat it in this episode and that you have somebody who really cares about character motivation and the kind of drama and improvisation and creative spark of making a world and populating it with people and having those uh, people uh, come into conflict or cooperation or the w different ways that people rub up against each other and the different ways of seeing the world with uh, just a real r robust sort of uh, knowledge of this i guess the technical side i mean the two things i'm creating a false dichotomy here really because the two things are obviously linked but um it's just it's just a great episode where you can simultaneously have your soul replenished and like learn robust principles around stuff and she talks a great deal about uh, how you know some of the actual there's a I really want you to listen to the stuff she says about her flash fiction and beta readers because that stuff I've not really talked about on the show and it's just really really useful so that's mainly I, I won't go on too long this time because I'm you know, aware that the best thing is to just hand you over to the interview uh it, it, just to say if you've not read her stuff that her latest novel that she's got coming out and one of the reasons I, th I think I was able to kind of uh, coax her onto the podcast was um, The House of Sundering Flames is her latest uh, book. It's the third in the series and um, you, I mean I'll put links to The House of Sundering Flames but you can also go and check out The House of Shattered Wings if that's where you want to, if you want to start the series there. 
Um, but please, you know, if you enjoy what she has to say, if it sounds like your kind of thing, I'll put links in the show notes and you can go and uh, grab a copy for yourself and support her work and treat yourself to a really fantastic book. I'd also recommend her Nebula Award winning and uh, Hugo Award nominated uh, novella, uh, The Tea Master and the Detective, which is kind of a um, uh, Sherlock Holmes inspired novella. Um, I, re- I think you just really dig it but with lots of twists that i i would rather instead of spoiling i just think dive in and let yourself luxuriate in the world i'll put links to that as well um and of course if you do like this podcast and you'd like to support me and you think what i'm putting into the world is good and you'd like me to continue doing it then there's two ways you can support me you can either buy my uh novels the honors or the ice house uh which you can go and sort of maybe just you know click through the link and read the description and if it sounds like your sort of thing then um order it i'd really appreciate that i'm a full-time author this is how i you know keep a roof over my head and feed my family so i'm 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 very very aware actually of all the people very grateful to all the people who shared stuff about my work or shared this podcast um because i get to continue doing this as a as a job and i get to continue doing this kind of dream thing that i love uh exclusively at the forbearance and sufferance of uh readers buying my books if if you guys continue to do that if you folks continue to do it then i will get to continue to write so i really really appreciate all the help i've had with people reviewing my books and sending me really nice messages saying they're enjoying them and sharing them online and being sort of like cheerleaders for the books i just it may it means an awful lot to me um and i try to sort of act not act overly enthusiastic when someone shares it because otherwise if i'm just going oh thank you thank you so much you don't know how i need this then after a while people get scared away but I, i i do appreciate it and if you just like to support the podcast help us keep the lights on here help me pay the bills you know paying the costs of keeping all this stuff online uh, updating my website uh keeping the paying my soundcloud uh, subscription fees if you'd like to help with that then i've got a link to my coffee page that's uh, ko-fi.com forward slash tim claire where you can go and just drop me a few beans to help keep the light on there's a link in the show notes there that is all the stuff i hope you enjoy this chat with edit the bodard i certainly did um and i hope as always, that your writing's going well. Believe me, I'm rooting for you. I don't want to kind of start by being too sycophantic or making you feel uncomfortable by go by fanboying out, but really excited to have you on the podcast. And the first thing I wanted to ask you is, can you remember what one of the first stories you told was? Um, I don't really know if it's the first chronologically, uh, because I was always that kind of child who loves reading, who spends their weekend at the local library, comes back with like a pile of books higher than child, and then proceeds to read them all within the next day or so, uh, much to my parents' um, bemusement, I guess. Uh, but I think one of the first ones that I remember distinctly writing was, so I read this illustrated story, it was set in the Galactic Empire, um, and I don't actually remember a whole lot about the Galactic Empire, but he had a cat emperor, and apparently the cat emperor had mislaid his daughter, um, and they hired someone <laughs> to find her, I guess, and I came away with 
mostly the conclusion that drawing was really not where my strengths were and that I should probably give up on that. Uh, but that writing was actually not bad, except that my handwriting was terrible and obviously was one of the happiest persons when the the personal computer became more popular and I could finally have one or at least share one with the rest of the family. That story sounds awesome, by the way. <laughs> that sounds really cool. I think we lost it in one of the numerous moves, but recently my mum was like, I think I may have it. And I'm like, do I want to know what like 11-year-old me got up to? <laughs> or do I want to just remember it as, it may have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> when I've heard about people going back to something and looking at it, it's often less coherent than it is in, I think our memories are very good at filling in gaps with sort of narrative expectation. Uh, when I went, I've gone back to stories that I wrote when I was very young, remembering them as these quite, you know, sophisticated things. And actually I see that halfway through I got bored and just started a different story. So it's, it's, always, it's always interesting. Did you know other people your age who wrote? I think we mostly did it from time to time, right? Uh, so with a friend, I co-wrote uh, a James Bond script during like the summer holidays for fun. Um, wow. Mostly it ended, as I recall, with Bond in the hospital for two months. Um, <laughs> I'm complaining about the fact that he was stuck in hospital for two months. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, that's really realistic, right? That's kind of like, uh, you know, we see the consequences of, uh, uh, of Bond's mischief. Well, and why did you want to write? Because you talked about like having going and getting all these books and and and, and being this kind of like voracious reader. Did wh why what what was it that was drawing you to stories and writing? Well, I guess I was always drawn to stories, but I also guess that uh, you know how when you're little you take some things as just granted because that's the way things have always gone, right? So you're, for instance, the way that your parents are behaving us is by no means universal, but it's just. Well, the way it's always been, right? Uh, and similarly, I thought that, well, writers have kind of always been. And um, I went through the French school system, which um, at least it feels that way. I don't know if it really is that way. But when I was hitting the sort of very introspective teenage, early teenage years, say from, you know, 12 to 15, 16, it felt like all the writers were... Uh, mostly male, mostly white, mostly uh, polymaths living in the nineteenth, the ninety, the nineteenth century, uh, and they were all dead. And I sort of assumed, I guess, for a while, that the prerequisite for being a writer was like having died ages ago. <laughs> Even though I had seen other writers, I had met other writers who had signed books for me, but. By the time the whole should I write came around, I sort of had this very strong assumption that, well, I couldn't write because that wasn't a, a current job, right? Um, and when like, I was. Like writing was, was like, it sounds like writing felt to you like there was this kind of age of miracles in the past yeah. where people wrote, you know, where, 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 where magic used to exist. And now it's mostly faded. And there's a few kind of like hedge wizards, but the the great power that fueled it has mostly burnt out now, and and it's kind of a legacy thing. Yeah, pretty much, and you know, and, and we cannot recapture the golden age or something. <laughs> uh, and then I borrowed a writing book from the library when I was sixteen, um, 
and it was this very technical book, right, about how to write and what it meant to like get your stories critiqued and and how to start a routine career. And I was like, so hang on, people do that for a living? I mean, I could write a book, for instance. And and I thought I was going to try my hand at writing a book. And I wrote maybe three or four chapters of this book, which was, it was set on a planet where you couldn't actually live on the surface or where people were telling themselves stories that you couldn't actually live on the surface. And so all the cities were underground. Uh, and it was about this like angry, sullen t- teenager that uh, got those magical powers that she really didn't care about. Uh, and uh, was being used by a politician to get reelected and decided to run away. And that's, I think about where we, no, I stabbed the politician because, you know, what's a story without a good stabbing? <laughs> um, and then we moved back to France because at the time we were living in London because of my father's job. And, uh, and I moved back to France for my studies and the computer sort of died uh, pretty terminally, like it didn't start up. So I learned a valuable lesson about backups. Um, oh my <laughs> I, gosh. Sorry, I was like, actually, I think my face was frozen in horror for about 10 seconds during that that, that revelation there. Oh, no. Poor yeah. you. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I was pretty devastated. And I thought I printed it out, but actually I just printed out my world building notes. And, oh. And I started some pretty, like, intensive studies. And I was like, you know what, I might as well write, write another book. So I wrote two other very bad books. Um, I think I submitted one of them to you. I think it was Earthlight at the time. Uh, and I got I still have the rejection letter somewhere. <laughs> I was 20 <laughs> or possibly earlier than 20. I remember still being missing at my parents, which means, yeah, 18, 19. Um, so possibly I still have them somewhere. I haven't actually dared. I can't tell if you're, you're are you sort of laughing because you think that's sort of... Uh sort of unreasonably early or unreasonably precocious to be sending stuff out because it's pretty I mean by then when you sent that out it sounds like you know you'd written more than some people have when they when when they submit stuff right you you, you'd kind of done you you read loads you've read an incredible number of books and you'd been writing and you'd written more than one novel and you'd sent some stuff off I guess, but I, I mean, and, 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 you know, and I don't think that being 19 precludes you from writing a novel, but from the point of view, as like, from me looking back on my 19-year-old self, I'm like, uh, <laughs> I didn't really know how to write a novel, <laughs> and writing a couple didn't really improve that process so much. <laughs> so I'm looking at them now and going like, well, they were good ideas, but they were mostly like, thrown together and divided into chapters and then we got to the end and it, it was fine the end <laughs> and epilogue all the characters are dead <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I love yeah the, the the dark the dark epilogue is a good is such a great <laughs> well, I don't um I was reading a lot of David Gemmel at the time uh and a lot of the Gemmel books actually have this epilogue of like well after the events of the story, right, uh, this happened. So for instance, like, this fortress that the heroes have spent all their time defending now falls. <laughs> or these people now fall out and they stab each other. Oh, it my was, gosh. There, there were those very cheerful epilogues of, like, here is history marching down on you. And the secret of history is everyone dies at the end. <laughs> wow. 
Um, and I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure why. You know, excuse me for kind of like going going to bat for uh like younger you, but it sounds like you had a sort of really admirable sort of drive and confidence at that stage, even if you know it, with reflection you feel that some of it perhaps wasn't 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 in proportion to what you were producing um it it's it's fantastic that you you know because i i just get lots of letters from writers who can't write for fear that they're going to do a bad job and um will be listening with kind of like admiration and envy what do you think it was that drove you to to be to finishing them because it's no mean feat like just the 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 mechanical labor of finishing a novel let alone doing a couple and then having the confidence to send them out i I mean i think i'm generally very bad at dealing with like unfinished stuff hanging in my life so that was mostly uh, if i don't finish this like one way or another like killing everyone is you know a legit way of finishing (laughs) apparently um i I don't do that in my actual novels today Uh, just (laughs) <laughs> to reassure you uh, and the listeners but um i feel it's really because uh yeah um i don't like having unfinished stuff hanging around uh and i'd rather be stuck with something that is finished even if it's not to my satisfaction uh yeah no, i'd rather finish something even if it's like i end up with something really bad uh rather than have something that just stops halfway through um and i kind of felt like i wanted to know where the characters ended even if you know, that wasn't quite what presently would do or what, you know, someone with more writing skills would actually end up with. Uh, the submission part was really hard, though, um, and it remains really hard. It's the, oh, my God, someone else has to see this. No! <laughs> that's, that's, I, I mean, I don't, don't want to say, oh, I'm really glad to hear that you, you go through that, but I think as someone who I sort of, I look, look at and I think a lot of other people do as someone who's like enjoyed a lot of success and has lots of readers who really like love your work the idea that that still is something that you know causes you some you know that you you don't just go ah well here it is my latest work uh and then wait for the kind of like the world to sort of applaud and toss bouquets of flowers at you that that still is just that's a still a nervous time for you is it yeah uh I feel I mean I feel like I've gotten around it mostly by, um, um, I, well, I got a number like of, you know, ways to trick myself into actually submitting the story. Uh, I mean, obviously the, you know, sending it to my agent who then submits it is one sort of screen between me and the actual person who's going to read it. Another thing that I do is, um, I make the story run through better readers and I've got this, okay, well, if my better readers were happy about the story mostly, except for those details that I need to rewrite, once I have actually addressed their concerns and rewritten the thing, then surely it's good enough to be submitted. There's part of my brain that goes, no, 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 you're wrong. But, you know, not long enough to prevent me from hitting send on the submission email. So, and then I get, so I get, is that group of readers that you've had helping you, do, have you had them since the, have they always been with you uh, since you've you, you've started submitting work or uh, have you sort of accrued them over the years? Um, I sort of, sort of, they're not always the same people, right? And they're uh, like 
they change and those people who when I ask them are not available right uh, or people who for some reason drift out of writing and are not as interested in critiquing my work because it's, it's a lot of work to actually read stuff and then provide a critique especially and... that for that early that early yeah, in the process right there's some there's some rough edges to it right yeah the the, the dish of spaghetti approach of like <laughs> okay tangle tangle <laughs> um so and i can understand that's a commitment that a lot of people don't want unless you know there's either like the chance to read something by someone you admire or some form of reciprocation in the okay uh read this for me and then when you need it i will read something else for you in return right um which is basically how I function these days. Um, so so you, you've got so you've got a couple of sort of mutual uh, 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 beta reader um, yeah. relationships. So you sometimes would do that for other people when it's appropriate as well. Yeah, it's mostly a kind of like mutual crit. I would say group, but that kind of implies a really formal thing. It's more a sort of like you know we'll drop each other a line and say hi. Do you want to read this? And whoever wants to can i used to be in a group that had a lot of like very firm structures and i have to admit um i dropped out shortly after my kiddo was born because i just couldn't you know um i had to be able to say no sometimes just because uh, hey the kid had has the flu has had the flu uh or uh, hey today is like norovirus house or something <laughs> yeah oh not norovirus house you've had that um the, the norovirus fairy has <laughs> visited you we've had that as well in the past it's um it's quite a ride isn't it <laughs> I, have you had the cycles the, oh. it goes around the house the first time and then ours just went through friend's house right and then came back Oh my gosh! It's like, aren't you bored? Like a wee, like a, it, this this kind of thing, and you see it coming towards you after a while. I've had I've had norovirus go round a writing retreat that I was on once, oh and God. once so one so each of us got a day of just being absolutely. Oh. And I still managed to write twelve thousand words that week, despite spending quite a lot of it, and like either terrified or as agent. Uh, as, as patient zero um so can we just I, i'd like to sort of talk because i think people would be really interested to know what happened do you think between you writing stuff and submitting it and it just being in your sort of like opinion now looking back not good enough and you starting to write books that were at a level that readers were going to enjoy what what do you think can you just talk about that transition from kind of like you submitting to you getting stuff done? I think mostly what happened is, uh, so I found, um, so I found people who were willing to read my stories and tell me like, you know, that part sucked or that part was great or, and I do want to stress that, you know, as a writer, I also need that that part was great in order to actually not torch it by accident when I'm editing the oh other Oh my stuff. gosh, yeah, yeah, because you've seen it. You've seen it dozens of times, so you're bored of it by that stage, right? You don't know yeah, what stuff exactly. needs and to I'm stay. Like, and I'm like, okay, let's set fire to everything. And then sometimes that does include the parts that other people really, really liked. Um, so I think part of it was like uh, finding people who were willing to read my stuff and mostly finding people whose stuff I could read because there's nothing, um, like, you know, there's some value in getting people to take a look at my stuff and tell me what's wrong with it. But there's even more value in me reading a lot of stories and trying to work out why did they work for me and why did some of them not work and 
where did they fall apart, right? And it's always easier to see in other people's writing than it is in yours because you're more distant from other people's writing. Um, I wrote short stories instead of novels, which made a faster cycle of feedback. Uh, and I'm really lucky in the sense that I can write short stories and novels, which is not the case for everyone, right? Some people's natural length is the novel. Uh, and that takes a longer time, obviously, to be read, to get feedback on. But um, I couldn't write short stories, right? They were not short, uh, but they were shorter than a novel. Then again, you know, my novel went were 200,000 words and counting. Uh, <laughs> so I obviously had room from sli- for slimming down. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a lot of, like, cycles of, like, reading critiquing short stories. Um, I was a member for a while of a place called Liberty Hall, which was uh, founded by um, Mike Munsell, uh, and who was run by a couple of uh, other people uh, who are still a pretty close friend of mine. And uh, it used to have flash challenges. Uh, so basically you got a prompt and you got 90 minutes to come up with a flash. Um, so so for, uh, what, what, what is the kind of rough word count for a for flash fiction uh so what i would do would be like uh get the prompt do some brainstorm uh and then um sort of get the the outline of the story because i find it i'm a planner so i find it really hard to write something randomly i just need to have an idea of where it's going um and i also type super fast uh so i wasn't very good at the flash part of this but you know i had two thousand words after that and they may not have been very good words, but I had the skeleton of something that could be edited. And some of them I just tossed because they didn't work. But some of them I kept and expanded or edited or cannibalized for other stuff. That, sounds, it, that sounds awesome, right? And uh, what is your experience of writing under an essentially impossible time frame, right? Like, like that is an un... You know, by normal writing standards, that's an unfair time frame that no author could possibly or would be very unlikely to produce something that reflects their best work. What's your experience of, because that's really, I think that'd be really interesting. Um, you know, mm. was that a valuable process? Or was it just hell to like have to have I, to produce I, something? I actually found it super freeing because it was like, it's impossible. So no one's going to come up with something that looks, uh, because the thing that happened at the end, right, is that all the flashes were... Uh, we submitted them and then they would get published on the forums and then people would critique them. Um, like a few lines of like, you know, I really like this and this doesn't work or something. So you, you, you know, you also committed to reading other people's stuff. Uh, and, and I had this sort of like, you know, everyone has 90 minutes. No one can write a decent thing in 90 minutes. So why don't we just throw things at the wall and see what sticks? Uh, so in a way, there there was no expectation of a finished product, just to sort of produce something decent or or even halfway decent in ninety minutes. Can can you uh, I just because I think this is sounds like such a useful exercise actually. Can you give a sort of example of what sort of thing would you receive as a prompt for something like that? What 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 kind of prompt? Uh, what what kind of shape do they take? Uh, it could be a lot of things. There were a couple of images. Uh, what worked most often would be like uh, quotes. For, for instance, we got a Walt Whitman quote that was, uh, as I recall, I'm very loosely paraphrasing, but it was, uh, for I contain myself and yay, I contain multitudes. Mm. Uh, I ended up writing a sort of reincarnation story and about uh, 
people who wanted to find someone's true name uh, and could actually get a good handle on it because the person had gone through a string of reincarnations. I, it's one of those stories that I remember because I could never get it working to my satisfaction. Um, but, but, the idea, but, the, but clearly that idea, because it's a great idea, right, is kind of like still... Do you think it might even be chewing at your brain still? Because it sounds like it's something that you like, you're looking for an angle to crack it, right? Some ideas will just stick around and some some ideas will just receive them. That's okay, right? I I keep an ideas file currently where I throw a bit of everything and then I look at it and go like, okay, yeah, some of it is cool, some of it is not. I, I sort of, I think one of the other things was it made me very relaxed about ideas in the sense that I was like, okay, well, if this one didn't work out, I can do another one. Um, and it also made me a lot more confident about my capacity to, well, produce things to a team, to a theme, right? That sounds, re- I mean, it sounds, it, you've made, I, I feel so inspired hearing you talk about it because it sounds awesome, right? And it's interesting to me that you used the phrase, you said, some pe- for some people, like, novel is the natural length and some people, short stories are the natural length. And you said that you are lucky you can do both. It does sound from what you've described so far to me and, you know, excuse me, tell me, do tell me if I'm wrong. It sounds that like you have made your own luck to a certain extent in that you have trained pretty vigorously in both forms, right? But I feel, I mean, yes and no. I feel like this is something that requires training, obviously. I mean, I mean, some people actually like wake up one morning and can write short stories. The, uh, the monsters, like yeah. Are. I would like to know who they are so I could just go like, I hate you. Uh, but um, but I also feel that for some people, like, you know, they will never be able to write short stories no matter how much they try, and that's okay. And for some people, novels are never going to be the, feel, the thing that they feel happy doing, right? For me, writing also has to be something that doesn't end up feeling like a chore. Otherwise, you know, I can go back to my day job. Um, I mean, no, now that my day job feels like a chore, but... Um, but it's got to be something that brings me something different from my day job and and that feels fulfilling to me. Say that I didn't find writing short stories fun, I would probably not do it anymore. Can you talk a little bit about um yeah, the 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 turn into um when when you're when you started becoming a public like a published writer and I, I don't want to I don't I don't want to overplay that term published writer as if it sort of suggests some kind of material evolution that makes published writers of a of some higher substance than writers who are still you know working on stuff I, I just would like if you could like reflect a little bit on how it affected if if at all your practice your self-perception when you now were putting work out there that readers were sort of paying for and and reading themselves it's funny because i don't actually remember that making like a big difference i was reflecting recently that one of the major shifts that i had was um and to some extent i'm still grappling with was the fact that you know um i was talking about the contrast between writing and my day job but the truth is that writing is also a job right in a lot of ways i was having a lot of difficulty convincing myself that this was the case i wanted to be more proactive in establishing my writing time and making sure that my writing time was getting was actually happening and there was always this feeling to me that oh it's it's kind of a hobby and it's kind of fun and and therefore it's 
it's not it almost becomes optional in okay well you know um the kids need something or laundry needs to be done or whatever and and i was reflecting on how hard i was finding that mental transition of oh but it's a job now i have to start treating it as a job and that means being serious about the hours that i put in the feelings of uh like i hear a lot of authors talk about feelings of guilt and feelings of imposter syndrome as well when dealing with that kind of thing um because there's that feeling of now I'm sitting down at the desk and it's, you, you know, you slightly feel like you're giving yourself airs, like a kind of concert pianist. So now I'm sitting down to play and something wonderful is going to come out because it can, it must, because this is now a professional enterprise. Did you find, did it increase the pressure doing, doing that? Or did you find that it freed you to take it more seriously and actually it, it helped to, to take yourself seriously in that way? Well, I feel that, you know, um, handling deadlines and handling juggling of projects and uh, a number of things like that uh, certainly got a little uh, stressful on that end. You know, in some circumstances, like writing would feel a great deal less fun because I now had a deadline and I now had a project. And it put a certain amount of pressure in the sense that I couldn't just say, oh, I'm going to just walk away because I don't feel like it today. Or tomorrow, <laughs> or any time, really. I I wonder if we can sort of move into talking. Well, because I, I want to get to the uh, the House of Sundering Flames, which I've been reading and really enjoying. And I wondered if we could just talk about the Demillion of the Fallen series a little bit as well, because one oh. thing I've really enjoyed about, and not the only thing, but one thing I've really enjoyed about following you on Twitter is when you talk about your work work in progress how much like obvious delight you're taking in sort of elements of the writing process and there's like a real authentic enthusiasm for some of your characters and I think it's it's just really infectious to see sort of how how kind of invested you are and how much you're enjoying writing uh, some of the characters at least that's the impression I get when I'm sort of uh, reading some of your tweets about it, it te- it seems like you are having quite a lot of it feels like you're having quite a lot of fun with like a group of old friends. Is that accurate, or is behind the scenes is it uh, a doom a, a doom mill yeah. of uh, a, a slog? No, I think it really depended on the scenes. No, it really depended on the characters uh, and. Um, for instance, if we're talking about House of, House of the Sundering Flames, there's like the duo Thuan and his husband Asmodeus, who are like basically snarking at each other throughout the most of the book, really. Um, and so these scenes more or less wrote themselves, uh, and they were really fun, and it was really nice to have them because most of the mm. other scenes did not <laughs> write themselves at all. Uh, so there, there were a number of characters, like, it's definitely got to the point where the characters kind of feel, like, very familiar in the sense that I know what makes them tick, uh, and I know what, you know, their foibles are, I also know what their good sides are, and, and this was very much a book about, you know, communities and how different characters with different skill sets can come together and, and make something out of devastation, which was a very important theme to me. Uh, so it's in a way it was really interesting to see how 
all those little quirks that they had and all those like blind spots sort of became compensated by other people's major Would qualities. Would you be able to I for guess. people who haven't, who aren't familiar with sort of starting with the House of Shattered Wings, um, uh, the series? Would you be able to just give like a little uh, precedes for like uh, what the series is about or where it's set? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so the the Minion of the Fallen series is set in the so it's set in a gothic sort of alternate nineteenth century Paris. Uh, it's uh, it's a ruined city that's been completely devastated by a magical war. And after that magical war, what happened is so the houses, the major magical factions of the city, uh, sort of uh, pulled back and decided instead of fighting each other that they were just going to do politics, which is just another way of fighting, really. Um, and it follows the adventures of a number of characters who for some reasons are in a precarious position with regard to the system of houses. Uh, so you have, you know, people who change magical faction, not always willingly. Um, you have, uh, Vietnamese immigrants who are, or the descendants of Vietnamese immigrants who came from the French colonial empire and find themselves drafted into the uh, fights of factions that they don't really care about, but that they have to enter in order to survive or refuse to enter, in the case of my favorite little anarchist character, who Philippe, who spends most of the books going, mm. nope, not doing that, nope, really not doing that, now I'm pissed off. And so, and it's, in many ways, it's an examination of, power um you know what what communities mean how communities are built how they rub against each other and the more fun way of looking at it is uh, i love 19th 19th century books as i previously mentioned i read a lot of these when i was uh, studying and a lot of them don't have enough characters of color or queer characters and i just wanted to put all of these back in uh adding magic extra dragons and go that's a, oh my gosh wow i like just had chills that's such a good <laughs> such a good uh pricey. that's amazing yeah like it's um it, it, it it's uh I, I i really i i i couldn't i obviously i couldn't put it better myself because you're the author and that's why i asked you but um what what do you, do you remember i know this is always sort of like a slightly dicey question but do you do you remember what the first sort of sparks of it were how this world kind of like started to assemble itself in your head ah uh, sure um i feel like there were a couple of sparks so the first was a really um it wasn't that it was really bad but i had this project of writing a urban fantasy that was set in paris in the 21st beginning of the 21st century except an alternate paris which would have had families of magi magicians fighting each other uh and each family would have had a different geographical location uh, and these became like the houses um, and, you know, 21st century Paris sort of became a little weirder. Uh, and the second thing is uh, I wrote those stories, uh, I don't really know, like sometime prior to uh, writing all of this, I had uh, two linked stories that were set in the sort of alternate 19th century city that could have been New York, that could have been London. It was never really clear. This kind of alternate indeterminate 19th century uh, city where um, 
you had fallen angels and and those fallen angels had magic and in particular they had it whether they were dead or alive so a number of people rather than deal with the live angel would just kill them uh and then sell sell off the remains a kind of like grisly twisted version of relics uh which is probably where you know the subconscious idea came from um and and the friend of mine Rachita Lonen Roos who I was visiting in the Netherlands was like well I know your 21st urban fantasy isn't quite working but maybe you could put that magic in and that was kind of a light bulb moment of maybe I could actually and so I threw that in I threw on top of it uh, all the sort of more um nature um element space Vietnamese uh magic that I had been growing up with all the stories that either you know my maternal family told me or that I read in books and and that sort of sort of happened i remember sending the first three chapters to my agent and going like okay what do you think about this and my agent was like it's very good go on go on and i was like it doesn't sound like you're being very enthusiastic about it so i sent him the, like the eight chapters and i don't hear anything for like four or five days and i'm like okay i think i've broken my agent possibly uh, and my agent writes back after five days and says so the reason it took me so long to come back to you is i was making someone else read it and we both agree that it's great whatever you're doing don't stop yeah, yeah i any ambiguity I, I actually although having said that i think i'm one of those writers and i think i know very many others who there's almost no level of enthusiasm that i can't if I'm feeling vulnerable, interpret as either someone being kind or insincere. Um, but it's, that's, that's, I, but also I, you know, it's a real, it's a real good sign when someone's enjoyed something enough that they have to then take it to one of their sort of beta readers or a trusted friend and go, am I like, am I losing, am I, am I losing my mind or is this really great? Because often that agent is then actually quietly really excited and going, am I, is this as good as I think it is? That's fantastic. You, how did it did it change what your experience of writing it, knowing that someone was going, "Oh, you're onto something," because now you've got like now you've got like a freight in there of like a potentially great thing that you could crash, rather than the, rather than just knowing if I don't do this right, I can kind of chuck it because now it's like this is precious cargo, right? Um, yeah, no, it definitely added to the pressure. Uh, and I was feeling very insecure about it, and I got to the end, and and well, you know, there's there's a number of like, um, like you know how we listen in a way to some of the same stories over and over again. We listen to them through book, we listen to them through media, we listen to them through like newspapers, right? And so it gets to the point where when we deviate from those expectations, my like our brains go like oh, but this isn't the way it's supposed to go. And I'm not going to spoil the ending of The House of Shattered Wings, but I sort of deviated from the script majorly in the ending, and I was feeling very insecure about it. I was like, it makes sense for the story, and that's what it needs. But also my brain was going, but this is not how it would go. And... that's. I mean, that's kind of... I guess that's... that. I was speaking to last time on the show, I had a neuroscientist to, who who um is studies creativity in the brain and does it through zapping people's brains with electricity but what he was pointing out was that like the 
this idea of like creativity on some level involving divergent thinking and that anything that's original anything that's new any innovation is like initially processed by us as essentially an error message right it doesn't fit the heuristics we've got to set up to understand the world and it doing anything original or interesting i think involves essentially making a category error or a mistake that's how you break out of old tropes right yeah yeah no and and even if you you know you take old tropes and then you mix them up in a slightly different way you still get the error message of this is not how we have been doing the mixing up till there (laughs) yeah you're like (laughs) yeah it's like uh, zombies don't uh, run a bar together that's uh, struggling to kind of like compete with more upmarket uh, bars along the street like you, you go these are two but you can have those two tropes right of like zombies and uh, like uh, underdog story of a business and smash them together and you get something new yeah no it was I feel it was definitely um, and and to me as well there's the extra layer of um, having grown up with a storytelling tradition that's not necessarily western uh, a lot of the error message I get is simply not the right tradition um, and not you know Vietnamese stories have a different emphasis and a sort of slightly divergent rule set, so to speak. And a lot of error messages I was getting was also, well, the Hollywood movie would not run like this. And I'm like, yes, but this is my movie, right? I am doing the movie right now. Can you talk about that a bit? Because I'm really interested in this tension between wanting to write something that satisfies readers and wanting to be true to yourself and not simply just reproduce stuff that already exists? Mm. Uh, well, I feel like, um, I mean, first specifically in book one, what I was dealing with was the narrative and actually book two, actually, The House of Biting Thorns is probably where it most prominently happened. Uh, the narrative of The Chosen One um, which is like very prevalent in genre, like the person who gets selected to do this like amazing thing and who is special with a capital S. Um, and and I had a character who uh, seemed to fill the mold really, uh, who uh, you know who was um, seemingly selected by a powerful being, um, and who um, considered herself special um and who in a lot of other ways diverge from the mold for instance uh she can't fight at all um there's a fight scene at one point in book two and she literally dives behind someone else um and you know and goes like right <laughs> and hands them uh i can't remember what she was holding she was holding a weapon uh, that had been given to her by the other person and the other person was like i'd like that back mm. when the fight starts because you're going to be useless with it. And she gives the, like, I think it was a spare. She gives the spare back and she goes like, okay, dive. Um, and and a lot of it goes against, you know, this heroic mold of like the chosen one is either good at fighting, good at magic, good at something, right? And that character is uh, good at magic, but like in a very nerd way, right? Mm. She wants to be left alone in her laboratory, like tinkering with things. Uh, she doesn't really care about the practical implications of it, uh, and she's not, you know, she, well, in, actually in many ways she's a nerd in the sense also that she is not, you know, social contract is not how she gets her kicks, um, 
she would much rather like take apart magical artifacts to see how they work. And part of the narrative keeps dragging her into those very like, we need heroic gestures now. Mm. Uh, and she keeps dodging in a sense. And the heroic gestures keep being made by the anti-hero person who's like, you know, well, a psychopath for want of a better word, and who's completely ruthless, completely transparent about being ruthless, uh, who operates by a, a rule set that, you know, most people would not consider very moral, which he considers moral, right? He considers that, you know, I protect people and there are no rules on what I will do to protect those people. And when I say no rules, it's like, okay, yeah, I can like stab those three people to protect the person that I'm protecting. I feel no remorse. Um, so, and, um, you know, part of it is slightly admirable, but part of it is also really twisted. And that person ends up being the one who makes most of the decisions that would have felt heroic if they were not actually taken by a psychopath. What? So I'm really interested and I love hearing, I know who you're talking about and I love hearing like the, I feel like I'm hearing a, like an element of barely suppressed glee in your voice as you talk about it, or certain like a kind of like delight. <laughs> What's going on there when we write about characters who we feel, how do you handle writing about characters that you don't agree with their um, ideology or their morals? Because, you know, I was had... Uh, V.E. Schwab on uh, a few months ago and she was talking about writing characters that were being, you know, cruel and sadistic and, you know, discovering with a kind of shock that the the readers seem to be enjoying that and not being quite sure how she places herself in relation to that. What what do you... I wonder if you could see what's going on there for you. What Why do... I mean, I know as a reader, sometimes I enjoy that and sometimes I don't and I'm not sure what the difference is between characters that I enjoy seeing do that and ones that I feel sort of repulsed by or whatever. I wonder if you could reflect on that a, a bit now you've kind of like gone through the process. I feel like, well, um, look, for me, a character to work has to have something that interests me. And that's very different from something that I approve of, right? Um, I usually joke that, you know, uh, there's a lot of characters with whom I would not have drinks in a bar. Hmm. Uh, or very short drinks and making sure that they haven't actually poisoned the drinks. <laughs> uh, the point is, I'm still interested about reading what they're going to do in a given situation. Uh, and to some extent, um, I feel like, okay, um, so um, if we take, for instance, a character that I'm, I'm talking about who's, like, who's called Asmodeus and who operates by this simple moral code of, um, so I own, um, you know, uh, the people who are serving in my magical faction are the people I have sworn to protect, and there are no holds barred on how I will protect them. Um, and to some extent, I feel that for me, it works first off because he's completely honest and transparent about this, and we attribute a high value to honesty, um, which offsets the fact that he's being honest about stuff that is completely to me immoral right um the second thing uh, that i think makes it work for me is that it's a sort of halfway admirable code so i have a, a character who's very similar who's called uh, morningstar so lucifer morningstar the actual um first fallen angel in the uh, universe 
um, and who is also completely ruthless in pursuit of his goals, right? The difference is that the goals are personal and selfish ones. And I feel that to me, that sort of draws a line of a lot of people find, uh, I have readers who are like actually fascinated by that. And I'm, I'm not as a writer because I feel like that's one step too far. That's like two things I find reprehensible, selfishness and ruthlessness. Um, whereas Asmodeus has the sort of twisted altruism uh, and the ruthlessness, which I guess I can work with. It's a sort of half-half, right? Um, I disapprove of his methods, but the goals are admirable, if that makes sense. Uh, and similarly, I think that if someone had admirable uh, methods, but goals are disapprove of, I could, to some extent, sympathise with them. I, I, um, I, I, I beg your forgiveness in asking this question, but do you think there's an element in a character like Asmodeus of aspiration and i'm not for a second uh, <laughs> implying that you are um a, a, a psychopath but i just mean somebody who yeah. is not constrained by the normal societal codes to mm. to, to act in protection of what they care about and in the in in service of what they believe in I feel like to some readers there might be an element of aspiration. I think personally I don't, but I think the aspect of the character that does appeal to me is the truth-telling. Is the... He is being completely honest about the fact that, you know, he has to do some fucked up things, and he's also the one who calls out a number of characters in saying, you know, you want to have things halfway, you want to be moral about the fact that you're shedding blood, and there is no morality in this. And... And there I agree with him. Uh, so I feel like this aspect of the character I very much empathize with. The actual ruthlessness I find, you know, I personally think that there are rules and constraints and generally for a good reason. I, I, um, I, I think also in the community and world that they exist in, there are so many uh, codes of how you engage with other people and social rules and status games and ways of kind of trading insults and barbs and things like that, that he also, there's a feeling of having somebody who is being straightforward in that, um, in a world of intrigue, uh, it, it sort of strikes quite a strike, a contrast that's quite refreshing. Yeah. And I feel that that comes back to what we're saying about the honesty and the truth telling, right? I feel like, we as a society place a high moral value on it and the reader does and i do too right because you know i'm also part of the society and i feel that sort of makes it more palatable if that makes sense uh and so to me it's a sort of it, he works for me because he's a composite of doing stuff that is really again quite admirable and you know quite um not morally okay but um but that makes sense and that you can, as a reader and as a writer, I can sympathize with. Uh, and he combines that with a number of things that I find absolutely appalling. Um, and I feel as well there's a certain, that brings a certain narrative tension of what will he do, right? Um, and there was one moment, for instance, I remember when I was writing book two, 
where uh, I'm going to keep this like as non-spoiler. I've been like... really impressed by the with the um, grace and elan with which you've danced around various spoilers so far. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I did was in book two, I gave him a background as essentially being someone who was the head of uh, the children's department in uh, in his house, which is something you would not expect of his character and which I thought added a layer of sort of unexpected. And so in book two, he assists at a birth and then proceeds to kidnap the child and the mother because, you know, let's not separate the child and the mother. Um, and, and a number, like, my editor had misgivings about that because she said, but, you know, that's just monstrous. And I'm like, but that's the point of the character, though. That is totally what he would do. Right, and we compromised on. I had him kidnap only the child, and now it's a double kidnapping. I'm not. I mean, I'm not too sure if that makes it better. But um, but to me, that just sort of feels completely natural in a sort of like, well, you kind of want to know what he's gonna do, and and then there's a sort of horrified fascination of, okay, he's actually done that, and I feel that's you know, deployed sparingly. Because obviously, if I was reading a book with only characters like him, I would just like want to stab them all. Um, I feel to some extent he also benefits from like you know being the only one in the cast who gets away with that. Uh, but when you sparingly, I think like terrified fascination is a great emotion to deploy. Yeah, it's 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 it's, re- it's really interesting actually. You sort of mentioning how there's that tension between wanting someone to be readers to be able to stick with it. Um, not making, but at the same time, not wanting to give them easy answers by kind of like uh, smoothing, sanding down a character's sort of yeah. difficult bits. And and the fact that he's proactive as well, I think is a really good point. A character who does stuff. I mean, there's different ways you can do things. They don't necessarily have to be an action oriented character, but the fact that they make things happen and change the plot and leave scenes different to how they enter them yeah. is something that's very watchable and readable. Yeah, it's, it's an engaging mechanism, right? And I used a number of them. And you notice there's also an enga- like a mechanism I used that um, he's never a point of view character. That increases the sort of like, I don't really know what he thinks, even though he says it, but... There's this sort of narrative tension of I'm not really sure of what he thinks or what he's going to do. And I feel to me that also I'm not too sure if I, I mean, I could write in his point of view. Right. But I'm not too sure that would have the same effect. I think it would def- I think it would definitely have a very it, it, he, he, he serves well as a character who, um, like you say, is a truth teller who has that kind of archetypal thing that actually the 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 devil does in a lot of folk tales of expo- having a function of. Uh, for all his flaws, exposing hypocrisy, you know, yeah. uh, uh, it, by pointing out inconsistencies in people, um, by, by you know, being open, you know, like not an agent of chaos, but an agent of change and motion is definitely like very, very watchable in scenes if that's not an oxymoron when talking about books. No, and I feel, you know, and I feel to me, for instance, that doesn't quite transfer to Morningstar because... I do find Morningstar morally repellent uh, in goals and in ways of achieving it. And I can see he's got some redeeming features, right? I also gave him redeeming features because I, I don't really like the all-black character, right? But I'm not 
fascinated in the same way and I don't pursue that fascination in the reader uh, in the same way because I don't have that kind of horrified approval. It, it, uh, and you know, those are narrative choices and those are where I draw my moral lines as an author. It's not, you know, I'm not saying that this is the way things have to be forever in all books. It's just the way that ended up playing for it's, me. It's really good to hear how, why it's I just, it's been so helpful actually to talk about breakdown, why it works, because I think that point of tension where we're not quite sure what we think or where there are some good bits and some bad bits and we can't just put someone in an easy box i think that is always somewhere they kind of live on in your head because you're still there's not a receptor where you can just file them away they keep popping mm. out of it and existing and you imagine them in new scenarios and with horror or surprise or there it's, it's just they become sort of like an interesting set of spectacles with which to view the world i think yeah, well, there was, I wrote this 20k novella in which like he and Thuan go down to the Dragon Kingdom for New Year and Thuan sort of introduces him to his family and it's sort of like horrifying comedy of manners slash investigation in which like, you know, things go wrong and they have to investigate a plot against the Imperial family and Asmodeus is like, yeah, your place is really fucked up, really. And sort of like, you know, very like, on-brand sarcasm while poor Thuan is like, why did I think bringing my husband home was a good idea? Why? Uh, but also, you know, they, they sort of play against each other and they got very complimentary, complimentary skill sets in a way that plays out in House of Sundering Flames as well, obviously, um, in a very interesting way. I really like, you know, showcases those kind of like opposites. Not only opposites attract, but opposites in general. It's it, it, it not again. It's like that kind of uh, that that idea of like uh, heteroglossia and uh, sort of novels being a polyphonic form where you have different voices and they're about celebrating or like putting. You know, there's there. It's a dialectic, right? You're putting different viewpoints together and exposing them to the same. Uh, events and seeing the different ways that things can react and, uh, you know, not make, making those viewpoints battle, but giving the reader an opportunity to select between a dialogue of different um, points of view. Hmm. Well, I think I've been very... Um, I recall reading somewhere, and I can't remember where, but that the, like, the Chinese and to some extent Vietnamese novel... Uh, and storytelling tradition of around the 15th and 16th century was about contrast rather than about conflict. So you had all those layers of different people put side by side. And I read it 10 years ago. I have no idea if it's actually accurate. But what I took away from it was like, this is an interesting technique, though, to deploy in a sort of, you know, it makes the world building more complex because suddenly as you say you have this polyphony like all those different voices and they don't agree with like each other with how they see the world but also you get all those little snapshots of this is the world seen through different eyes it's 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 really can i can i just I, i'm just conscious of like not wanting to take up too much more of your time and i really wanted to just go back to something that you mentioned earlier and because there were so many exciting things we we're talking about I just kind of like I've it's it's had a sort of like a, a board pin in it until now 
Um, you are the first writer that I've had on the show who, who has openly declared a side in the um, Panzer versus Plotter uh, Great War. <laughs> um, almost everybody sort of um, claims to exist in a kind of like a, a sort of mythical uh, demilitarized zone between the two. And um, and I and 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 you, you yet your you came out and said you're a, a planner. Now I don't want to sort of I'm not trying to spark uh, internecine factional disputes or anything, but I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how that shakes out in your process and how it's just interesting. Everything you're saying about characters rubbing up against each other is that stuff that is baked in. Is does the plan include that as well? Are you saying this character will react this way or is it much broader and then you see the characters reacting in the moment or do you let them do that in the in your plan? It really depends. Um, I, I do need to have a fairly good idea of where the novel is going when I start writing it and that includes a scene-by-scene scene outline. So to get to that point, I will have to do quite a lot of planning. Uh, that said... What often happens while writing the novel is that my novel will diverge from the outline, at which point I will pause and redo the outline. Um, and I feel like I was talking about this with a writer friend recently, but knowing broadly what's going to happen in the scene kind of frees my writing processes to tackle other things like characters and what they're doing. But I have a good enough sense of the characters in general to know how they're going to react to a given thing. Um, not the actual details, which I work out when I'm writing the scene, but the, oh, when this happened, so-and-so is going to react this way, right? When this happens, this person will be cast into the pit of bottomless despair, which is a really nice place to be, like, you know, 25% of the way before the, the book actually ends, the sort of, like, everything is, like, in disarray, and where are we going? Um, and so... Generally, because I know what makes the character tick, so I kind of know, okay, this is how it's going to happen. Um, but I will come back, you know, and obviously I also, you know, revise, do edits, so I'm not saying that the novel's graven in stone, but just that I start with, like, a fairly good map of how I'm going to write this thing, and if it goes off-piste rather than continue writing off-piste, I will redraw the map, because that's how I feel comfortable. And again, you know, this is this is how I work. I'm well aware that a lot of people don't. Uh, and in maybe in ten years' time, I will not be saying this to you, right? Maybe my writing process will have changed to some extent. It's like different for each book, um, and for you know each short story and each new project, and or it changes during the book. It's it's a very fluid, very pragmatic. Okay what works up till now thing what can you just um i just can you maybe i just wondering if you could drill down into what what that moment feels like how do you get the sense oh this character doesn't want to do this or like because you've got if you've got your plan in front of you um i guess some people listening go well how how why do you not just follow the plan how could it ever not just go exactly that way when there has been pro uh, you know a point in a mm. book or novella or whatever where something has significantly diverged how you know how do you get how does that happen 
I feel mostly because, you know, I, I have an outline, but it's not obviously as detailed as a full novel. And what happens is you, you get a lot of little changes that snowball. And then we get to a point where I'm essentially asking a character to do something that's completely against their nature. You know, for instance, like, uh, unprompted, uh, you will go help those people you have a really bad grudge against and you will have to do this thing for no fee yeah that you've been that you've been kind of like in all the scenes up until now i've had you sort of snarking at and yeah. uh, and, and they've been really rude to you um and 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 all of that yeah i see what you mean and that that's organic in those scenes and then when you get to here you go what why would they do anything <laughs> yeah and then i get to the point where like well hey, hang on they just i mean there is no way that negotiation scene is going as planned right it just ends with like the character slamming the door and saying hi Bye. Uh, at which point, you know, it's the ripple effects have like gone large enough that it's make a dent in the outline, and I have no choice but to go like, okay, fine. He walks out. Then what? That's cool. So, so it's like you you start writing it, and as you're writing that scene, you you get this sort of like building intuition that the character, like you're in the wrong timeline. Uh, like uh, this isn't how yeah. destiny, and then and then you. And then you have, and that at that point you will go back, and the kind of what if uh, the the main business of the what if is done on a sort of new draft of the plan. Yeah. Um, or sometimes what will happen is uh, quite a few problems in the climax to House of Sundering Flames, where uh, originally one character was meant to go back to their magical faction, uh, and. And then made the decision to make the decision to leave the safety of that faction again to defend uh, their friends. Um, and I got to that point, and I was like, I could get the character home, uh, but it would deflate all the narrative tension. So that's just not what's supposed to happen prior to a climax. So I'm like, it makes no sense. Uh, the character has to go home at the end because that's the shape the narrative has been taking up to now. You know, their only goal has been to get home. And if I give them that early, then, well, they might as well, you know, exit the narration and go to bed and the arc is done. And it feels a little like the balloon deflated a little too early. Or, you know, I, I got the souffle out of the floor, out of the oven and it's like, OK, that's kind of disappointing the way it turned out. Yeah, it's it's like it's like people are it's like the narrative arc is kind of stacking chairs and then the character is tying up a couple of loose ends rather than everything kind of like happening yeah, together riding on that tension and actually ironically that kind of happened like way ahead of the point where the character was supposed to head home like about two three scenes beforehand i started having this sort of nagging doubt of something is not right something is not right and then it, it felt like writing through molluscs and after a while i was like it feels like writing through molluscs because something is bothering my subconscious what is bothering my subconscious that's so amazing uh -oh. that that is your you, you that's the way that it feels to you because that is exactly i was going to say that exact uh that exact analogy that there's that point of of just going why why am i resisting why am i wading it why does it i feel yeah. so all this resistance why has it become so hard well, I mean, to be honest, though, uh, a lot of the times it happens is like I hit the scene and then about two or three scenes afterwards, I go like, that's two or three scenes now that I feel like something's gone wrong with the narration. And I would go like, oh, that scene, the one that happened like 20 pages earlier, that's where it went wrong. Let's erase everything past that point. Um, I, 
Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been it's it's been really great fun actually, and I feel like I've learned a huge amount. Um, I was just wondering if I'm going to sort of ask the impossibly broad question, but um, uh, it, for the for the sort of writers listening, I know they're all sort of different uh, stages of like grappling with stuff, but. Uh, is there anything have you got any sort of writing tips anything that you've taken on board that someone else told you that really helped you through a difficult patch um have you got any sort of advice for people who are working on something at the moment um at sort of at, at any stage in the process that you think has helped you well, I think that one of the things that helped me a great deal is to see that uh, what is very valuable to have feedback on your work sometimes is just the wrong kind of feedback. And by which I mean, um, you know, the attitude where you dismiss all feedback as I am genius is definitely not a constructive one. But one of the things that I have found as well is that you cannot write by committee. You cannot make everyone happy, even within, you know, a five or six person crit group. And one of the ways in which I have notice this working very well for me is paying attention to what other people are saying about other people's story and seeing which one have opinions that kind of align with mine and that's a rough guess of we have similar reading tastes um and that means that their feedback is going to be about writing a story that um is going to match my vision of it. And the other one is a lot of people, instead of giving you a diagnosis and a fix, will go straight to the fix. And you have, like, you know, you should remove this character from the narration, whereas the real reason may, you know, that's the fix directly. The diagnosis is, this is confusing. I'm losing track of who's who. There's too many characters, possibly, for instance. Or, you know... Uh, that character is really not doing anything because her plot feels like it's going nowhere, right? Uh, so the first thing, rather than implementing the fixes that you are given, is working out what kind of problem they're lining up against and do you as a writer want to solve the problem that way or another way? Because there is no one fix and it's going to depend to some extent on what your vision is for the story. I think that's a fantastic uh advice actually that's uh you articulate those things incredibly well they're both things that um i now you've said them i instinctively <laughs> go yes 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 absolutely you can't see it but i'm here going i'm, I'm nodding <laughs> vociferously um with enthusiasm i think i don't have anything to add that's fantastic uh ad ad advice that i absolutely can to sign and, and is totally true of my experience of both sort of workshopping stuff within groups and I was desperate to please everyone I didn't want to be arrogant at all and the the, the anxiety when I realized people didn't agree I was like I, I'm gonna have to pick a side <laughs> you do it's really really hard and I feel like you know and most people are actually like you know a lot of writers have big self-esteem problems and are, it's very easy to kind of lose yourself in other people's opinions um I'm I'm going to put I'll put links to um all the books of yours that we've discussed in the show notes today's uh, of today's episode and on my website timclepper.co.uk if people uh want to find your work uh or you online uh where's the best place for them to go Uh I have a website alietdibodar.com uh that's more like for the official where do you want to find my book 
if you want to find me like you know talking about characters and tearing my hair out on question of which one word is exactly right for this sentence uh, i'm ali db on twitter cool. I'll, that's I'll where put i put links to people. both of those in the show notes as well thank you thank you thank you so much for coming on the podcast i've really really wanted to chat for you for a while it's been even better than i uh, hoped uh, thank you so much for your time well, thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. I really enjoyed oh. it. And it's been also great fun articulating some stuff that I hadn't seen up till now. <laughs> That's so fun. I'm really, I'm really glad. It's, it's, always, it's always fun to sort of discover what I think when, when I'm asked to say it out loud. It's uh, lovely. Um, and everyone listening, um, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.